planet. Fanboy planet. Watch animated chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie. Sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the letter F in your dictionary and add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the definition of a fanboy, baby. The British Bake Off? Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a regular series. They bake. Um, and uh, I was interested in watching because next season one of the guys from the Mighty Boosh is going to be on it. But that was, um, was like biscuit tower competitions and somebody made a biscuit tower out of uh, uh, into the shape of a Dalek. And uh, so there was Doctor Who crossover, basically, in, in this episode, um, which I think is being watched on Hulu. So the question is uh, that they call it biscuits, but then they refer to macaroons. So in British vernacular, does a macaroon count as a biscuit? Hmm. You know, I don't know that there's an answer, but I'm sure they discussed it at length. I, no, I, I don't know. That, I don't think they discussed it on the show. I was only half paying attention, but it, but it, it, it came up to me that uh, I, it just occurred. You know, it was an interesting question because to me, a macaroon is so specifically a macaroon. I will have to look that up. Some I later, suspect but I can't a, which... a biscuit has lard in it. So you go with that. Well, I think of a biscuit as a hard cookie. I do. And so, you know, a macaroon is kind of a, you know, a, a different thing. So, but that's, uh, I can't remember which, uh, which comedian was saying that, that, you know, it's like we've lost that, that the days before, maybe it was George Carlin, God rest his soul, you know, talking about the days before um, you had the internet that you could, that, you know, you used to be able to just wonder about things. Right. Right. And, and you know, and just let it be kind of a question and have conversation. And then, well, they didn't you know, have the internet. Months. You couldn't. You couldn't be definitive. Well, right. But I like that idea of not being definitive. I like that. You know. So that's it. Yeah. So uh, this is Derek McCaw, editor in chief of FanboyPlanet.com, and uh, we are podcasting on Wednesday, March twenty second, uh, across from me or across the internet, really, because we are uh, conducting this podcast via Skype. Now I just want biscuits, you know. I want a tin of biscuits. Rick Brett Snyder. Well, luckily, you're in your home. And yeah. You could probably bake some. You could bake some biscuits. You could. And anyway, yes, podcast producer Rick Brett Snyder. And, of course, if you are listening to this on iTunes or Google Play, please rate us, review us, subscribe, and tell your friends. Uh, you can also find us, of course, on fanboyplanet.com, where each and every podcast has its own dedicated page. And if there's anything that we talk about tonight that you think you would like for your own personal collection uh, and you cannot find it at your local brick-and-mortar store, you'll probably find a handy-dandy Amazon search box, if not a direct Amazon link to the items that we talk about. And uh, we get a little little kind of kickback from anything you order through Fanboy Planet to the Amazon search box. And as well, of course, if you would like to just help defray the cost of, of Hosting a website and uh, and a podcast, you can donate to uh, editor at fanboyplanet.com on PayPal. That's editor at fanboyplanet.com, which is a very all-purpose email address because it also means that if you have any questions, comments, compliments, commentary, criticism, 
Anything you want to say, you can write in to editor at fanboyplanet.com. You can find us on the Facebook page, slash fanboyplanet, and, of course, Twitter and Instagram, at fanboyplanet. And we got a lot of comics news. Well, actually, no. well, we got a lot of comics we'll talk about, I'm sure. Movie news, TV news. Uh, but first, uh, our top story tonight is uh, actually two, two top stories, which are the second part of our big CineQuest wrap-up of our interview sections. So uh, we had a chance to talk to, talk to sit down with a couple of uh, filmmakers about... T- tonight is two very different kinds of films. Um, one is a coming-of-age teen comedy, and one is um, a, a creepy child genius film, <laughs> which is, again, love the genre, but uh, a little sci-fi thing and a little kind of fun comedy like meatballs so um <laughs> that's what it was described as to me uh the, the first one is is a, a film called uh, is, is wild man that's the film that's like meatballs i'm sorry that's what what the actor slash writer ted welch uh, the, uh described it as he said he wanted to make a movie like 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 meatballs that he remember watching as a kid on, on like hbo and and so forth um and not necessarily late at night, right? Uh, so Ted Welch, who a uh, really great guy, and his co-writer, uh, Stephanie Black, who also co-directed with Jackie Phillips, uh, the three of them and the rest of the crew sat around. We, we were sitting in California, so I think a lot of different people uh, call out their names, and it's really only Stephanie, Jackie, and Ted uh, that, that talk about the film in this interview. But it was a great time sitting down talking about about this movie and the funniest part to me is that they they you know the advantage I guess of CineQuest having gone to Redwood City into a regular um, Cineplex the Redwood City Century 20 uh, was that they they were able to actually divert people from seeing Logan (laughs) on opening (laughs) night to go see their film so uh, you know interesting and we'll talk about that please see my film yeah so uh Ted Welch, Stephanie Black, and Jackie Phillips. <laughs> right. We are uh, recording with CineQuest with cast and crew of uh, a film called Wild Man, which I suppose from its title alone. Am I guessing raucous sex comedy? Is this it? And, and they're confessing, the, the group is confessing me today that they've already committed an interesting, uh, I think, a sin. I, you know, to 14 to 16, would this film be rated R? No, uh, actually, because there is no objectual, objectionable content, we just drop a lot of F-bombs and a few shits. Which, if there's a 14-year-old kid the out word. there... The word, the no, word. No, actually, <laughs> no, literal as well. Oh, okay. There's a lot of peeing and a lot of... Okay. Yeah. True, true, that's questionable. That's if you've ever seen, word. like... Um, Monster Squad back from the 80s. Fred Decker's where film, those yes. Not the TV series, the movie. The, yes. the film. So, like, those kids are cursing, and that was PG-13. And a lot of our film pays homage to uh, tropes from those movies So let's, like, let's go around and identify, starting the person who's confessing that she convinced 20, <laughs> 14 yeah. to 16-year-olds not to go see Logan and instead see her film. So... Yes, I'm Jackie. I'm a producer and co-director with Stephanie. Okay. So, I'll go because I'm Stephanie. Hi, I'm <laughs> Stephanie. Uh, I'm the co-director and the co-writer, and I play Sally in the film. All right. And 
I'm uh, I'm Ted Welch, and I'm the co-writer, and I play Bo, who's the wild man. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And I just have to note that uh, Ted was introduced to me on Thursday night being told, you need to get those piercing blue eyes on the podcast, <laughs> which I hope everyone can hear those blue eyes. They sizzle. Uh, yeah, I mean, they parted the clouds above us. They were so clear and piercing. So, you know, there it is. Ted. I'm Brian Adler. I'm a producer. Okay. Serena Khan, producer. And I'm Christopher Barkley, executive producer. Excellent. So and I will agree with you that uh, you don't want to stare at those blue eyes too long. There's no lifeguard on duty. Yeah. If, you drown, if you drown in those baby blues, yeah. come on in the water. It's okay. <laughs> we should probably say our last name. I'm Stephanie Black and Jackie Phillips. We didn't say our first name. We, we directed this I did that on purpose. I keep a real All right. So, so who, right. who, really? <laughs> the only director in Hollywood saying that, you know. I don't want anyone to know who I am. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, Elaine Smithy. Uh, so uh, who's who came to who with this idea first? Um, I, I got in some trouble with the law. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, while I was doing my civic duty, I kind of thought of this story of how funny it would be if uh, Flo from Progressive or one of those spokesmen for insurance company, I was like, how funny would it be if one of them got in trouble and put on house arrest? And I was like, because I play a lot of rednecks and things, like violent rednecks. And I was like, well, what if I was like a redneck that was like a... With blue eyes, though, by the way. I just wanted to say. Was a spokesman for something. And then I got a DUI or assault. And then it kind of, I started to write some scenes. And then Stephanie and I got together when I came to a wedding. And I was like, I got this idea. I'm going to send it to you. And, like, you know, maybe, and she was like, yeah, I'll, I'll help, we'll write it together. And then I sent it to Stephanie, and we went back and forth for, like, three months, probably. Yeah. And then we, I got Jackie and asked Jackie if she was going to, we all kind of came in it together. And then um, then they took it and <laughs> did it. I didn't do anything with producing any of it. But, yeah, that's how it kind of came to light. All right. We've all been friends for a really long time, and. Jackie and I went to college together at NYU, and um, she produced the first film I ever directed, and she directed web series at Ted Road, and we all have just been working together for a long time, and she's directed Ted and I both in plays, and so it just was like a natural fit for us to direct this together. So I guess if we're, if we're thinking about like where it all started besides meeting at Williamstown Theater Festival, we did a play called The Chrome Warrior about five or six years ago in L.A., and Jackie directed that, and I, I played like basically the Daniel LaRusso sort of karate kid and she played the mom of the villain and yes, it's yes, like I a did. real weird 80s comedy okay no I like it the intriguing thing is you're going to tell me that you met doing theater in LA no uh, no, yeah. we met you in theater in <laughs> okay. theater at, William, at Williamstown Theater Festival in Williamstown okay. Massachusetts okay well in that New makes York more City. sense okay yeah. alright because we know LA you know, you know who was in our like hey, in our little group theater. When we, because they do like an apprentice and an act one and a non-act group, and it was Chris Pine, Frankie Shaw. There's a ton of people <laughs> that never went anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> out of our little group that was there that summer. It's yeah, funny. We're all doing great. Yeah, we're all killing. <laughs> all of us. Uh, you know, so uh, a question for, for you two, for Jackie and Stephanie, is yeah. you know this is uh, this festival has caught, come up a few times that. Um, there are a lot of women directors at a time that the Annenberg report out of USC is talking about how few opportunities there are for, for women yeah. directors. So would you like to comment on the, the difficulty and in, in, in basically taking control of your own career? 
Well, it's sort of a necessity at this point. I mean, the numbers are not in our favor as female filmmakers. I think in television, I just read something recently that said out of like 47 drama pilots this year, only one is being directed by a female director. So in television, the numbers are heavily unbalanced. And I think actually in independent film, they're coming up a lot more. Um, I just actually I just read that 40% of the films at Tribeca are being directed by, by women. Well, all the festivals in 2017 are focusing on that. I think it's been... I'm sorry, a drone strike down. has just been called on this, uh, this interview. Hold for sound. Hold for sound. Hold no, for keep going because I don't edit. Go ahead. Um, I, I think it's been a focus. So in the independent world, there is a lot more female directors and festivals are recognizing that. But there are more female directors in the independent world because you can – That's nobody's handing out jobs to us. So – if Ted hadn't come up with this idea and if we hadn't been crazy enough to be like, yeah, we can put this together in four months and go to Tennessee and shoot it, um, we never would have directed a feature. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I was working as an assistant for two years and a director's assistant on independent features. No, nobody was going to hand me a job. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I directed three shorts and was, you know, I brought a few company and I'm a working actor and just trying to figure out a way to make more movies but honestly like Ted really came to this and, and, and really I would, I would have to credit Ted because he came with it and was like we're going to make it there was literally no option that this wasn't going to happen and even up till two days before shooting when like you know everything falls apart and you think it's never going to happen like he st- we still he was definitely still a person like this is happening we're making well this and then there's the same thing you're taking control of the career and you and I talked Thursday night about how one of the things is when you go out on auditions you play, as you say, a lot of rednecks. This is, I mean, they're stereotyping, it's Hollywood, right? Yeah. You know, so, how is this freaking control of your image and your career? I just kind of got to a point, you know, Chris and I both live in Nashville. I just don't really care to be in other people's stuff anymore. I kind of want to do this. I want to make my own stuff with my friends and my people that I trust and I just didn't want to play rednecks all the time. I still like it. It's still fun to play a violent redneck. I mean, I just did. I just did it. I just did it last week for a TV show. But it's just like I, I just don't always. Playing a violent redneck. I mean, I say. But you'd like to break out and be like. Yeah, yeah. I like. First of all, they don't. I don't get the chance to be funny that often. It just hasn't rolled that way in my career. And this, I got a chance to like be funny, and it was fun. And even though we, yeah, I just wanted to take control of my own stuff and do. Would you like to play a brown-eyed person? No. I know, sorry. All right. Yeah. But you were going to say something, Jack. Oh, I'm known for making lots of inappropriate comments under my breath, so you probably don't need to get it. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, so how did you yeah. did make your premiere last night? How, how did we it go? Did. Um, it was really surreal. It was yeah. really fun. Um, like we said, we uh, found 20 kids and convinced them to not buy tickets to Logan, um, which I guess is Hugh Jackman. Bit, um, Come on. Don't say that! Everybody at this oh. table knows who Logan is. <laughs> oh, it's Professor it awesome. Stu- I mean, we, we went into Starbucks before, before the movie, as I'm being drowned out by a very no, you're loud not. You're okay. vehicle. You're okay. the, uh, we went into Starbucks. Um, and start, and we're like, there was all these people there. And we're like, let's start handing out some tickets. We had bought a bunch of free tickets and went to pass them out. And I went up to this lovely woman who was in her 70s. And I said, I don't know if you have any plans tonight. She was in exercise clothes. I was like, but 
my friend and I made a movie and it's premiered across the street at 715 I have a free ticket would you like to come and she came she came and she loved she it really and enjoyed she it. came up to us afterwards and she had really thoughtful things to say and she really appreciated that women this guy does not want to hear me talk <laughs> so loud. and she had like lovely things to say and was like very complimentary about two women making a movie and loved that we were like making a movie about this guy and that was like such a cool win I thought did you talk to the teens after I mean oh, I took a picture with them they were like <laughs> they were walking out and they go that's the guy that's the guy <laughs> and I was like they were like yo are you the guy can I get a picture and I was like yeah just wait just a second they were like it got to the a dramatic part which is like towards the end and they were all like kind of going to leave and I was like wait five minutes and I'll take a picture and they went over there and watched the rest of the movie and they I'll take a picture with them okay uh, so you know, I mean it's got a wide range of appeal then that's, that's if we can appeal to 14 year olds and 7 year olds then the target demographic that's, that's in the middle we're going to do because I want to say <laughs> uh, you know not for nothing for Jackie here is that it's also you know that's what Hugh Jackman as Logan does uh, appeals to 14 to 70 year olds so you should you should check it out Great. apparently we are the same level <laughs> I've just never been an X-Men fan. I'm more like, I love DC, I love Marvel, I love all the TV shows, I love all those movies. I just, like, I don't get X-Men. He was in Oklahoma. I mean, I, I did see him in that. I was going to say, I prefer, I prefer I Hugh Jackman on stage. I just didn't know that Wolverine was named Logan. Old Man Sorry. It's based off a comic book called Old Man Logan. You know your stuff. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this whole movie is out of Ted's obsession with... 80s and 90s TV and film, and there's so many references to it. I think anybody who's in their early 30s, like mid-20s to early 30s, like sort of that weird gap between the millennials and Generation X, which is where a lot of us on this team fall into, um, will get all of the jokes. And I think everybody else um, can find something in it to relate to, but yeah, you will never, ever want to play the movie game with Ted Welch because he will beat you every time. He sees everything yeah, gonna, down to like C level or Yeah, we're going to do no, this sometimes. We're going no, to go down. 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 No one will play trivial pursuit with you. Let's go deep. I think we've made Campbell. friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so, what's next for Wild Man? Just, you know, for people catching up this podcast, say a week or two from now, we time travel a lot mm-hmm. on this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, we're already two weeks into the future. What happens next? Well, um, we are doing the thing that independent filmmakers do where we are talking to different sales companies and different distribution companies and kind of exploring our options about where we want to go and what we want to do next. And one thing that even though we were all first-time filmmakers, we all decided before we had raised a single cent for this film that we wanted to be really responsible filmmakers and... um, so we were doing things sort of methodically and going to find the best home for the film, and uh, that's what's next for us. And then some other festivals um, that we plan to hit up that uh, we can't tell you about. Right, I know. <laughs> that's, that, that, that yeah. Almost every interview ends with that. Yeah. 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 We're going to travel with the film and, sh- and you know, show it where we can. And All right. On the and let's see the next screening. Oh, it's uh, it's tomorrow, tomorrow. at 11:45. Uh, so it, it, it won't make it time for the podcast. But the seventh at 6:15 at Century 20 in Redwood City, uh, and the tenth at 5 p.m. at Century 20 in Redwood City. So, thank you all for sitting down and and thank best you. of luck to this. Thank, thank you. you. That was a very fun conversation. The 
other great conversation I was able to have uh, track down. I think almost like the last day of of my being at the festival until closing night was uh, we saw this film Prodigy, which we reviewed on the uh, on the website, um, which was like a Twilight Zone for two thousand. I you know I, I feel like I'm, I'm never quite doing this film ser- you know service. Uh, it's a black and white think piece, um, interesting character drama with sci-fi elements and, and I said, you know, creepy child genius at the center, really talented kid. And I was able to sit down with the directors slash writers, uh, Alex Hoey and Brian Vidal, uh, to talk about Prodigy. I am at CineQuest, actually we're at the back of the Continental, the back patio. It, it makes it seem a lot more Hollywood VIP. when you say this. We're in the VIP, VIP lounge of the Continental. We're in the VIP lounge of the VIP lounge. So we're more in the loge. We're in the VIP loge. Exclusive. Yes. Section of private the table. This is, this is nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we've got uh, AstroTurf behind you. It's great. Uh, so anyway, I'm with the creators of the sci-fi thriller... Prodigy. Prodigy. So, would you identify yourselves for the podcast? My name is Alex Hoy, and I am Brian Vidal. Together, we directed and wrote Prodigy. Yes. All right. So, we co-creators there. Um, let's just talk about the film itself first, which is uh, what drew you, what sparked that idea for you to tell this sort of, as I accidentally said, evil child wheelhouse uh, but it's not but it, but it really isn't you know yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. it's far more than that it kind of gets away from that a little bit um one i'll tell them a little bit about the movie and you can tell them yeah, about yeah, the yeah, genesis a little bit um so the movie is a psychological thriller about a psychologist who comes into a strange military facility he's there to interview a patient but uh, he gets put through the metal detector and wanded and he's kind of wondering what's going on, and then he's finally pushed into the room, and he's staring across from this, what's supposed to be a dangerous patient, but ends up being a nine-year-old, freckled-faced little girl who's strapped into a chair and has a straitjacket on, and her hand's all tied up. It's a little alarming at first, and the movie becomes him kind of peeling back the layers of what's going on here and why she has gotten herself in, why and how she's gotten herself into this precarious position. Yeah, and the uh, sort of the genesis of the idea was that uh, it's funny. I actually I had submitted it as a logline for a, a screenwriting contest uh, a couple years back, a few years back now, and uh, it just you know I had a I had a stack of these that I was sending out. And I sort of I thought this one was a good one, so it was one of the ones I submitted, and it, it won the contest. And so I sort of always had it in my back pocket. Just this very, very bare bones idea of the psychologist going in and, and is it, you, you win the contest and oh crap and I have to write it. No, <laughs> it's funny because I, I won the contest, but it wasn't something that I immediately thought like oh let me jump on this and write it. I, I got what you know I got the prize from the contest and I thought oh that was a, you know that was nice. I'll let me work on these other projects that I have. So I always kind of kept it in my back pocket. And then Alex and I, uh, we've been working together on short films and just various other projects for over a decade now. And uh, at a certain point, we thought, you know, we've done enough shorts. Let's go ahead and jump jump into a feature and see what we can make of it. And so, you know, we both came to the table with various ideas. And I remember throwing it out, and Alex immediately sort of latched onto it uh, in a way that, you know, none of the other ideas sort of connected. And then from there, just it kind of we got an outline really quickly after that. It sort of was almost a month before we had an outline. Oh yeah, we 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 kind of plotted it out really quickly and then got a first draft out really quick and then i mean i think that's uh kind of it's kind of key to both our processes is to 
get something on the page that then you can refine because I think the refining of the script was really where it, it kind of became came into its own. Yeah, the old adage of writing is rewriting, that sort of applies very heavily in our case. Um, and so we did rewrite it over the course of about a year and then we, uh, you know, sort of just took, it took off from there. But I, I think as it's sort of the more, uh, I guess, emotional reasons why we wanted to tell this story was, uh, you know, we kind of had this idea that, at least thematically, that, that we sort of, as, as humans, we all sort of put, put forth these walls in front of us and sort of protect ourselves from the, uh, to just, you know, we put up walls to protect ourselves. And mm-hmm. I think that the idea that the psychologist has to go in and try to break down these walls for this character who's obviously sort of putting up this sort of barrier is... It just—it's something that we thought could have a very strong sort of cathartic ending. And who she herself is also really good at breaking down his walls immediately. Like exactly, she's, she's yeah. Got his number almost from the beginning. Yeah, right? and she, Alex she, usually like to say that the theme sort of revolves around that sort of the walls coming down. Yeah, it's. I mean, for me, yeah, it's about because yeah, that, that's exactly what she does. Is she pegs him right away for you know kind of what he is. And, you know, he is also kind of hiding. And for me, the story really was about how kind of, how kind of deep we really bury who we really are a lot of the times. And just how much we have to dig if we want to find out who somebody else is. And I think that in both cases, nothing is really as it seems. He's not exactly who she pegs him as right away. And she's certainly not who I think we present her as right away and he has yeah. to really dig to find out I mean that's the really the crux of the whole story is him just committing to figuring out what her deal is and, and how deep that's buried so why'd you go for black and white I mean it, it definitely evokes the good Twilight Zone series <laughs> I shouldn't say that the remakes have had their hits and misses this is the original too it's called the classic Twilight the classic okay the classic <laughs> Twilight Zone I definitely have that feeling yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's, um, yeah, we had to, I mean, Twilight Zone was on the forefront of our minds when we were even writing the project and just even outlining it because we knew we were going to be working within kind of a constricted means. And so those Twilight Zone, those really good Twilight Zone episodes are always the ones that are more cerebral in their sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they really ask the audience to think about what they're seeing. And it's much less about the spectacle of the science fiction itself. And so that was right on our, the forefront of our minds at the beginning. And it's really funny because when we actually got into like talking about the execution of the project, I had tried to convince Brian, like, well, you know, we should think about black and white. Like, that's something we, if we, if we wanted to shoot it that way, it could change things for us. And he, and of was, course, my my reaction was, of course, <laughs> no, no way. That's, I mean, <laughs> it, it seemed seemed almost like sort of. You know, we're obviously we're making this movie uh, not just for our own benefit, but also sort of you know we want we did want it to get out into the world, and and black and white is sometimes a tough sell for marketing. Mm-hmm. And just, I, I was very reserved about I'm, that. I'm, so. I'm much more a classicist when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to cinema. So I was like, black and white can be good. He was like, no way, nobody likes black and white. No, so, but, but I, I okay, I like black and white. Okay, well, but I do. but I figure that most other people didn't. But want so then um, we got into the post process where Brian was actually editing it and it ended up being him who, as he was going through stuff, would desaturate shots here and there and be like, man, this movie looks really great. And every once in a while, he'd just send me a screenshot and be like, man, look at this. And I'd be like, yeah, that's great. 
But then, so he ended up then convincing me after we'd gone color to then bring it back into right. black so and white. Modern technology, yeah. Yeah. right? Exactly. You can convert exactly, and it ended up that we had shot it in a stylistic enough way, and our contrast was strong enough mm-hmm. that we were able to like make the, that conversion back to black and white, and it still. Really it, well. it holds and it, I think it gives it a really nice style. Uh, and the good thing, though, is that we do have sort of the color version in our back pocket. We have a fin- finished final color version for any kind of distribution or anything like that. So we kind of get the best of both worlds right. where oh, it's, it's the opposite <coughs> of like, yeah, you know, they're talking already about releasing Logan in black and white. Yeah, oh, exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And like they did for Fury, Mad Max. Fury, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So you, you're going to go the opposite way. I like that. Right. Well, there's more integrity. The thing. Well, exactly. then the thing was is that uh, it, I think that it worked really well because we had that kind of outer limits, twilight zone kind of mm-hmm. like backbone to the entire project. Like that was really, really was kind of what we had, you know, discussed at the first at the outset. Was if we want to do something science fiction, it's going to have to be like these kind of old fashioned science fiction projects. So because it had that as backbone, then adding the black and white. I mean, in my opinion, it has strengthened the project for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. It'll make for a high-end collectible when you release there the black you go. and white right. LE figure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about process. Because obviously you're a writing-directing team. Yeah. How yeah. does that work? And you're not related. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, the Cohen brothers, the Russo brothers. <laughs> well, right. For, for us, I, I feel like... we glasses, but and yeah. your matching hats. But yeah, that's, that's right. Um, I, for me, the... I mean, we've been working together for so long, known each other for so long. At this point, you know, we know each other's families. It's uh, Alex's mom the other day. She she called me her her other son <laughs> because it, it does feel a lot of times like we're family, especially working with working so closely. Uh, but I think for a project like this, uh, just sort of at the beginning of it, we had kind of set up a, a story that had sort of very sort of specific segments. Uh, whereas, you know, you've got the moments in the control room and the moments in, inside the interrogation room. And those don't have very much crossover until the end. And so for us, it was sort of... Uh, so Alex would take one side of the room and I would take the other side. And we would write those separately and then sort of swap and give notes on the other. And then eventually, yeah. once we got to the end, we would just get together and sort of right. it wasn't, revise all together. Right. It wasn't until we actually brought the pieces together that we then started kind of actually getting to the point where it could get we could bicker yeah. and, the, and the the going the back and forth obviously always made things better and made things stronger but it was something where it was very beneficial that we did thing did things separately and then brought it together cuz it would have taken just more time and and you, we the ideas that both of us had individually wouldn't have been able to be fleshed out as much if they weren't kind of done separately and then brought together. Yeah, and then I, I had mentioned doing the outline earlier, and I mean we did the we both did the outline sort of together at the beginning stages of it, and I think that really helped in sort of getting us both set up in the the structure that we needed to sort of feel like we were uh, we were sort of following the same path, so we knew that. Even if we were doing separate scenes, we were always going to end up sort of at the same point toward the end of the script down the line. Right, and then it's t- in terms of execution, I mean, the directing side of things, we've, you know, like Brian said, we've worked together on you know, countless short projects over the last 10 years, and we both directed kind of our own things and helped each other out with those. And, you know, I, we've developed such a comfort with each other on set, and I think, I think it's really the preparation that kind of separates it because I've, I've had a really bad experience co-directing and I was very kind of you know put off by that but you know when, when we started talking about doing it together it wasn't 
even like it didn't even seem like at any point seem like something that was you know not going to work because we both prepare the exact same way and like when we go to shoot something we 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 get on the set we we know exactly what we want to accomplish and how we want to prepare for it and so that kind of uh, the way that we both work that way, it, it just it made for such an easy process, and when directing was no problem. Like, yeah, no, was, not at all. I mean, I, I think because we were both so much on the same page, it made it really easy to, you know, I mean, stuff went wrong on the set where you know the toilets exploded one day, and so Alex Alex sort of tapped me in and said, "Hey, I gotta I gotta go take care of this, otherwise, you know, the whole place is gonna plumber." Okay, yeah, yeah, great. that was yeah. my. Uh, you can look for that title for that at the t- end of the credits. <laughs> But yeah, so that was one t- a moment where it was like, okay, I mean, there's complete trust there because he, he can leave and he knows that my vision is aligned with his, his vision's aligned with mine. So we're sort of, uh, you know, two halves of the same brain. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit more uh, sort of, uh, I mean, we definitely have different styles yeah, in a way, way but they, they, they work really well together. Right, and, and, and we, we mesh really well because Brian knows a lot more about the technical sides of things and about how to make sure that those things are getting us what we want. And that's something that I am much more deficient in, and we wouldn't have such a, a good-looking and good-sounding project if we didn't. And then I'm, I'm more, more adept at just the, the basics of talking to people. <laughs> the he, he, the <laughs> basics of human interaction. Which one of you is the actor's he, director? That's Brian, what I was going to ask. Brian, Brian. Brian speaks to the machines. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's, it's no. easy to speak to my own kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, but so but, uh, you know, and and it's not like one of us is so bad at the other thing that we yeah. That we I mean, it would just it just those strengths mesh with each other really well, especially on set when we you know when I'm when I'm like you know is is this technical thing going to work? I know he is has an eye on it that's going to make sure we're getting what we need, and same on the other way around. Too. Yeah, yeah. Now, it was brought up at the premiere, uh, that it, and watching it, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me. Behind me was this gentleman with his two children, mm-hmm. yeah. and said, wow, you, you know, you made a thriller that still was absolutely appropriate for kids. Was that a conscious decision? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because we we never really considered it being sort of appropriate for kids. We always we didn't want the uh, you know we never thought of it as sort of a big horror movie or anything like that. You yeah. know, with lots of blood or anything of that that nature. But uh, we we didn't really hold back on the, the language very much at all. Uh, I mean, but there's you know, uh, I mean, still we didn't push it. Though, we, so. No, we didn't push it. But I think it's just our sensibilities. It's, it was so much about the character drama as opposed mm-hmm. to sort of any kind of. Trying to, I mean, we wanted it to be suspenseful, but we didn't necessarily want it yeah, to be visceral. Or I you think, know, I think that, like the, that one of the comments we've gotten a lot is that it feels kind of like a vintage movie, and that that was a, definitely a decision we made was to kind of take it, try and make it as much of outside of time as we can. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I think there's one cell phone in it, which really throws it off. But besides that, it it really could be. You know, someone asked us if it was set in the fifties. Because they just were like, you know, is this, you know, when did this take place? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about yeah, that. And yeah, and, it, and it, it, like there's, and so it's, sure. you know, there's this, this, the, so doing that, I think, makes it more kind of a, like, I always like to do that because it makes it more a universal story because you're not focused on those kind of things. And, and in being more old fashioned in the storytelling, that naturally, you know, is a little more, is a little more family friendly than, yeah. you know, a gritty thriller from mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of that's contemporary. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the uh, sort of the old fashioned nature of things and for 
uh, for I, I know at the beginning we really wanted we were heavily influenced by sort of uh, older films and we wanted the the main character the psychologist to sort of be our, our modern day Atticus Finch where he's sort of that mm-hmm. that sort of uh, you know this very strong sort of the rock in the uh, the rock in, in this you know the storm where he does, he's not he's not really affected by all these things that everyone else is he's somebody who you can sort of look up to and and sort of always uh, know that he has, on he's to, going yeah. to do the right thing right? yeah exactly and I think because we we started from that point with his character it sort of didn't make sense for the rest of the film not to sort of have that feel well, so I, I put in the review too he gave, I didn't think about it until I was writing it they really were like where is that turn of the mouth and the eye you know it was like Richard Long who's in like three or four oh, okay uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. he had that quality I and mean, now that you say Adam's Atticus Finch I'm like Yes, there's a strong moral, right. yes, exactly, yes. Um, but not over moralizing, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, what's next for you two? Well, I mean, because out of a film festival, it's hard to say. And when can we see this in our local theater? But although I, I hope, I think this is one of the most commercial I've seen in a long time. Excellent from uh, at a Cinequest. Yeah, but, uh, that's great. You know, I don't know if you've heard any of that, you know, <laughs> or could speak we've, to uh, it. W- we've had a couple promising discussions with uh, potential. Sales reps and distributors, and we're you know we we have like we've gotten a lot of good feedback about the fact that our movie doesn't have any names attached, but it has a great genre and the great hook, and and we've gotten we were just talking. But wait, to, wasn't she an American Horror Story? I mean, you she, can, you, she you, was right, an American Horror yeah, Story. Yeah, she was right. in a couple. I believe she was a scary child in Rona. <laughs> yes. So yes, yeah. uh, <laughs> we. Uh, I don't think we're looking to be pigeonholed as the no, creepy, as the I creepy don't. children kit people. <laughs> no, no. I, I think for us, the sort of next project we have... I mean, we have a couple different projects that we've, we've got outlined, but we do have a, a script for uh, something that, that Alex actually wrote a uh, little while back that we're sort of... Uh, we're, we're working on notes now and trying to get it polished up to send out some to some uh, prospective uh, Yeah, some folks. people who might be interested. And it's, uh, you know, that's kind of the dream of the festival run is to segue one film into the next really right. that's I mean that's really what it's all about and I mean if that if this does pan out then that will have hit the mark in terms of what we wanted from the movie and which is just really wonderful but yeah so uh, you know we're I think we're both kind of drawn to the, the thriller world more than anywhere else and yeah. you know uh, we're we of course want to take a little step up and not have to be as restricted in terms of you know one location a few characters but we we also realize that we're not going to step into a blockbuster right away, and we're we're still going to be doing a gritty action thriller, something like that, that will that will be able to maximize kind of what our sensibilities are, and that's you know one of the reasons we we wanted to make this movie is because we've become so efficient at making something out of nothing, you know mm-hmm. that's why we kind of set out to do this and said we should really apply these skills to a bigger canvas and try to go for a feature because. We, you know, we were making shorts for, you know, pennies that were that people were saying, you know, oh, did you make that for ten, fifteen thousand dollars? And and we were like, well, if we can make a movie that looks this good and take that and apply it over a, a broader <laughs> canvas, then, you know, hopefully that's something people will see and and think that that is valuable and gets us right where we want to be. All right. Yep. Well, uh, so listeners, please keep an eye out for Prodigy because I think it's going to show up somewhere. I you think know, so too. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> so whether it, it end up because it, it was also a very Black Mirror feeling. Yeah. Mirror, well, I, well, I, I mean, yeah. and it doesn't fit within Black Mirror's theme, right? But, but with shows like Black Mirror, exactly. getting into into and all, yeah, people I, are getting back into that idea of those. Yeah, I think it's I think it's most interesting, at least for me, to have it get out onto those kind of 
platforms of Amazon and Netflix because I really do think, like you're saying, I think there's a market for it, and I think it's something that people will click on. You know, we have a really yeah. striking image. We have a striking poster. We have a good teaser. Like, I think it's something people click that on. That's a great it, poster, and by get, the way. And that's a great it's a great poster, <laughs> isn't it? And so it's like, if you see that flash by on Netflix, I, I imagine there's a large portion of people that would give it a click. And I think if they start watching it, they will be surprised with what they find and, and will and will pass it along. I think yeah. word of mouth could be a, a really big boon for it. Well, it, it starts here. Word of mouth here. People, if you can find Prodigy in the next few months, watch it. All right. Thanks, guys. And after that interview, we, we bonded because discovered that Alex, and I put this up on Instagram, uh, Alex actually has a crew t-shirt from the Rocketeer that he was actually wearing. He was wearing it? While we were, while we were talking. And I was took it cool? Did you offer card. money for it? No, no, because then he wouldn't have had a shirt. And it was raining. Uh, you know, but I had my, uh, my business card case, which is a painting of the Rocketeer. And he said, dude, and he took off his jacket, turned around and showed me that. So uh, it was like, oh, okay, you and I, we, we can be friends. So, uh, great time. That's kind. Of, that's not the end of our interviews. Uh, I'm going to transcribe one uh, with Christian Gossett, uh, from the, who was one of the uh, producers on Quality Problems, but also a comic book artist, a comic book writer, and that will be showing up in print uh, sometime in the next week. Um, it's finding that time to actually transcribe. But uh, that was a great conversation as well. And anytime I get a uh, chance to kind of pitch to uh, give more praise to the film Quality Problems, which, you know, I got to say, it was probably my favorite film out of CineQuest this year. Uh, and one of the things as we wrap up our coverage that I really like about CineQuest is, again, that opportunity to see movies that I don't normally go to. You know, I, and, and I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit more about that when we get to TV because of, of streaming and so forth. But the kind of movies that, you know, as I said, we talked, they talked, uh, the wild man people talk someone out of seeing uh, Logan. And it's like, yeah, that's the kind of movies most people are going to cinema places today to see, you know. Yeah. Logan, Get Out. Uh, we saw Kong, Skull Island last week, you know, and, and, and many, there's still many on my list. I wouldn't necessarily go to see a film called, you know, the, wouldn't have gone to see a way to see something called quality problems, not knowing what it was. And then once I saw it, because it was at a film festival, it's like, everybody should see this movie. Prodigy, I might have. Prodigy, you know? I think, um, was a, a closer one. I, I've thought about that film a lot, and, and it's it's kind of sitting in between something I'd expect uh, Showtime or HBO to produce and mm-hmm. something... Well, I, and, I, think, and a, I, I think Prodigy would totally fit in you know, like somebody needs to create an anthology series. Yeah. You know, we, we talked about, uh, black mirror uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't, it doesn't quite fit black mirror, but it could, you know, but uh, something like an amazing stories with a darker twist. Right. Um, you know, because I thought after watching a couple of the shorts from, from mind benders, you know, we also, the visit, it's not a sci-fi, but it's got a kind of a, Ooh, you know, a little twist to it. Really well done short film. Where are you going to go see it? You know, we're outside of a film festival, and and that's uh, and it's again, a short, but I think that could have been expanded a little bit. Oh, I, I think, but I don't know that it would have. I I kind I I I went back and forth on that too. I agree with you that, but ultimately, I had you know, my gut was yeah, it could have been longer, and uh, it's kind of perfect as it, it is. is it you is. Know? I, I think it could have been longer with a couple more twists. Yeah, but I don't there. think it could have been ninety minutes. No, no, but, I'm thinking more like like 40 minutes so it could have fit in with a TV anthology. But I would have really liked it, but I, well, yeah, and, and we'll see. But where is that TV anthology? That's my right, call out. Right. We'll come back We'll come back to TV and say, yes, we want places for things like Mindbenders. 
I'm waiting for CineQuest to offer a streaming service and just be like, here you go. Um, although I can't afford a streaming service. But anyway, uh, I just read, read an article about streaming services just collapsing, you know, because it's like, there it is. With all these different streaming services, you are spending as much as you were on cable. Right. And it's, it's true. It's very true. I've tasted most comics. of them. And I don't, I don't see need to keep them. We can come back. All right, comics. I don't know why we call it. I've tasted most. <laughs> I've tasted. Um, you yeah, take a comics. taste and you decide. If you no, want I want to make it a little creepy because, yeah. of course, the first uh, the first real story oh, yes. tonight is you know we we got to acknowledge the passing of an absolute giant. Um, Bernie Wrightson uh, uh, passed away at the age of sixty eight on Saturday, or it was announced on Saturday. It's come to brain cancer. I didn't realize he had brain cancer. I knew that he had been in poor health. Yeah. Um, because I think about four or five months ago, they had to create, release a statement. Uh, his wife released a statement that Bernie would no longer be drawing. He couldn't see well enough to do it. He couldn't control. You know, he just didn't have the control. Yeah. Uh, he could sign his. He could sign prints, and he was still apparently. He. I think he'd really actually stopped drawing like two years ago. But he would appear at conventions, and he would still sign books and so forth. And um, this is one of those. Uh, passings that I, I never met him, but realizing on Facebook, oh, how many of my friends didn't just meet him, but you know that he mentored a couple and that they knew him really well, and you know that's you feel this loss. But let's I, to those listening who don't know who he is, the the, the most uh, it, it was weird. Luke and I watched Justice League Dark on uh, Friday night, uh-huh. and there's a and there's a little extra on the origin of Swamp Thing or the making of Swamp Thing. Right, basically how the comic book started, and that's Bernie Wrightson with with Len Wein, and you know the right Bernie Wrightson had been doing things in House of Secrets and uh, you know it, 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 Adventures in Unknown, whatever other books horror books DC was printing, but he wasn't like this well known artist, and and they took a chance on him for Swamp Thing. Well, first in House of Secrets, and yeah. then when they realized, yeah, we want to do this as a regular ongoing. And Len Wein cracks cracks that, but it's it's Wrightson's art that made that series, you know, what it was. It was so unlike. I, I guess I'd read he he was influenced by Frazetta, and I totally see that and sure. Hollywood and those guys. But I think he took it to a next level, and then influenced people like Mike Mignola and and Kelly Jones and people that really started using shadows in a really interesting way he's just and, so organic he's just like flesh yes. and mud and and even wood anything that he, he wasn't really um all that big on on buildings and saying that they were there but but when you he was drawing like arms and muscles under the arms and yeah, the, i want to say i mean the collection you used, used an interesting word it's sort of like what people said about like marilyn monroe on screen uh the intangible quality of Bernie Wrightson's art was flesh. Yeah. yeah um, and both... Uh, it really comes... Carlin and, uh, and Car D'Angelo, the cars, uh, posted the same panel uh, when they found out about uh, his death. It was a story in Plop. Yeah. With uh, this this gourmand who was being attacked by frogs. Which Plop was um, a parody is, magazine or comedy magazines. It was a parody yes, of the type was, of horror but film. But it was a horror comedy But it was a, it was a horror you comic know, that was actually pretty horror. <laughs> you know, the horror strip. Yes, and you know, the interesting thing I'm realizing in memory is that the first time I saw that story, 
Uh, Plop also, the story would go on to the last, to the back cover. There were no ads in Plop, like, like right. ad. And so I got that issue of Plop. I think, I think it was number two uh, at a garage sale for 10 cents with no cover. Oh, they all had the so basal, very basal ending, Wolverton covers. Too. On the back cover, right. But I'm saying I only had the, uh, the, uh, the point is that that panel uh, that was getting that's this famous uh, Bernie Ritson art of this guy being attacked by frogs. Right. Um, I didn't have. I didn't have the last page of the story oh, until really? years later <laughs> when they reprinted it in a plop anthology uh, digest, and it, it stuck with me. I mean, the story stuck with me for you know I was like six or seven, but I didn't. I I kind of presumed I knew how it ended, but <laughs> it was just kind of. I, I it was like, wow, it's such a visceral image. But you go from from that, um, you know, to get past Swamp Thing, to uh, the cycle of the werewolf, which was Stephen King's Stephen King, calendar, yeah. which later it did get published as a book, but it did originally appear as a calendar. So it was twelve paintings by Bernie Wrightson about Stephen King's werewolf story, which became a movie Silver Bullet. Uh, Bernie Wrightson, and there was a big, long Stephen King collaboration because he did the graphic novel for uh, Creepshow. Right. And uh, then he did illustrations for The Stand, and one of the volumes of, or two, of The Dark Tower, but I two can never remember which which oh, books they are. I could go look, but that'd be true. I think it was Michael Whelan was the, was the gunslinger. But, um, yes. Yeah, it's like four or five. But, I mean... Just a great collaboration there. And then later uh, with the guy that wrote 30 Days, Steve Niles, that wrote 30 Days of the Night, they did like four or five uh, miniseries. And and then I think the high point, uh, and I think uh, noted filmmaker Guillermo del Toro would agree with me, was, uh, because he owns most of them, the uh, pen and ink Draw, line drawings. I mean, really, really, really. You know, we were just talking about shadow, his use of inks, but he carefully scratched out in pen and ink illustrations for Frankenstein. That was a portfolio. They were, they were individual. No, it was a. No, eventually yeah. they released it that way. Originally, it was published by Marvel as uh, it was not really a graphic novel, but they but An they realized they had it. Epic, yeah. Epic published it, and I, I I don't know who picked it up. At the very, uh, I, I know I've seen it a couple times with a couple of different publishers since. Uh, probably IDW because they seem to have become the curators of everybody of the great art. And I know there's a portfolio that he released uh, that he releases portfolio, but I had that original uh, just publication of the novel. And I'm sure you can find the portfolio for quite a penny. But uh, but Guillermo del Toro owns most of the originals, and they're on display in his at home with with monsters oh, mm-hmm. uh, museum exhibit. Um, but, but they normally live in Bleak House, uh, you know, for inspiration for Del Toro. I think in the Rain Room, and uh, so uh, I, I'm sure other people are listening and go, "Well, what about this book and this book?" Uh, there's a lot of there's some weird mainstream. He did some some Batman stuff. There was a Thing versus Hulk book that looks like nothing else, you know, and, uh, and uh, the Weird, which was a <laughs> no other way to say it, a weird Justice League story with art by. By Bernie Wrightson, and uh, I think it was the Cult, the Batman miniseries, where there was a cult living under the streets of Gotham, and uh, there was an issue. So, there was an issue of Swamp Thing where it was a Batman crossover, and yes, and he and Wrightson drew Batman's cape 
like five times as long as anybody else had done it at that time, just blowing out behind him up above Gotham. Mm-hmm. Just like one of the the most striking Batman images I'd ever seen at that time. You know, now and now then we, you, see, yeah, yeah, and then you see the influence was Kelly Jones, which Len Wein has pointed out too. I mean, when they revived Swamp Thing, uh, when he revived Swamp Thing years later, Kelly Jones. Um, was the only artist because Bernie really couldn't do a monthly book. So Kelly Jones said, but Kelly, but Kelly Jones took, you know, Bernie Wrightson's vision of Batman for the, the red rain trilogy, the, the elseworlds where Batman was a vampire and yet many other Batman stories as well. Um, you know, so the influence of Bernie Wrightson will be felt for a very, very long time. And so we, you know, we just have to acknowledge that passing and, and seek out, there are two things I, I want to point out. They were already, DC had already planned on releasing a pre-Alan Moore Swamp Thing omnibus. I think it's due to come out in June. Um, so giving it the great treatment of of basically all of Bernie Wrightson's work on Swamp Thing. Uh, and then just today, uh, the revival of Tales from the Crypt from Paper Cuts had actually picked up two stories that had only appeared in black and white in fanzines in 1970. And they had, I mean, they'd already had this planned, obviously, because it's coming out today. But they had, they colorized, they put color to Wrightson's uh, inks, the black and white stories, so appearing for the first time in color, to uh, two stories by Wrightson in uh, Tales from the Crypt, number two, from Paper Cuts. Um, the stories are not, admittedly, the, the writing isn't that great. They're just like clever little twists, because he's trying to be a, experimenting with the EC style. But you see this guy artistically, you know, probably like 19 or 20, totally in command of, of what he was doing and what he was capable of. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. It's just an incredible so, loss. Yeah. So, um, on that, I, I just want to say uh, we can move to an upcoming Also in June, DC announced a crossover called Dark Days. I'm annoyed at company-wide crossovers. But the talent on this, Scott Snyder, James Tynan IV, Jim Lee, Andy Kubert, and John Romita Jr., and at least this crossover so far only appears to be two, uh, I, I'm going to assume, oversized years. specials. <laughs> two years. Uh, two oversized specials that will kind of seep through the rebirth uh, area. Uh-huh. Uh, Dark Days, The Forge will come out in the middle of June, and Dark Days, The Casting will come out in July. And what I'm hoping is it's one of those things where the other books could take or leave, whether or not they wanted to participate. <clears throat> I don't know that that's the case. Not a lot of information has dribbled out. They just announced this and it, and it's going to be Batman centric because it's Scott Snyder who, you know, has clearly become the Batman writer of, of the 2000 teens. Um, Grant Morris wanted that title. Uh, he lost to Scott Snyder. So there's that crossover event coming, and as much as we get irritated by crossovers, if if it doesn't take two years, and if it stays on schedule, and if it stays really compact, we'll see. DC is so many little little crossovers, and I don't know if, if any of your books tonight are going to talk about that, but let's turn to what's in the bag. Rick, what's in your stack? Okay, well, let's go alphabetical order. No, let's not. Um I'm going to start off with, uh, since you were just talking about Rebirth, and this is a follow-up to a previous uh, re- a previous recommendation, because 
it turned out to be just as good as I thought it was going to be. That is Action Comics number 976. <laughs> One of the very few I bought today. Yeah, <laughs> Superman. LA, so I bought it Earth 2. Superman yeah. Reborn. Well, do you want to take it? Have you read it? No, no, no oh. go ahead. I did read it, but go ahead, take it. Oh, man. Um, so pretty much what I was expecting, well done, nonetheless, uh, with a character I would never have used for this kind of story, but it worked. Um, the the resolution of all our Superman um, going way back, you know, to to yeah. say that all the Superman are the current Superman, um, and we're going to find out uh, next issue uh, if the world has been shifted to realize to to accept this as the one Superman. Or if we still have Batman kind of suspect, suspecting this doppelganger Superman, or uh, or if he's going to, you know what is interesting is that I saw online. I think Jamal Eigel posted uh, that this uh, this is the beginning of Jeff Johns' vision for the DC universe. I thought, well, we, we've you know we've heard that about Jeff Johns before, but um, I thought it was interesting reading it is that it reminds me of what happened at the end of Final Crisis. Uh-huh. You know, Grant Grant Morrison saying, "Look, Superman is the most important." He is the most important idea in, in superhero comics, and he has to know how important he is to this reality. And so I thought, you know, it was interesting. And the um, antagonist, I guess, if you will, who was responsible uh, was For at I least part of it. At least part of it was a, a very interesting choice. And I think somebody had done that back in. The 90s had dealt with it with as an antagonist who is essentially aware, not quite ambush bug level, but aware of a quasi-fictional status. He's inter- interdimensional, so I mean, he's, yeah. he's yeah, yeah. multiversial. And in fact, you know, I got to say, I, I you know, I once had a dream with this character when Smallville was on. Wow! And and they did not use, uh, obviously, they did not they use that character, but they did not take the approach that my dream went. But it was like a complete, fully formed pre-title uh, teaser uh, in which that character appeared and was multidimensional saying, you know, this is, take me to Clark Kent. This is all not the way it's supposed to be. And so it was just kind of funny that, of course, the comics actually use him that way, not saying, you know, anything other than I whenever he appears doing that, it's like, yes, I'd actually have a dream that that's what he did. And he appeared on Supergirl, and I don't know what it, I haven't seen that episode yet. So yeah. but, I, we're being coy, but if you pick up the right cover, his face is on the cover. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think what's, what's, what's splendid about this is that it takes, it takes it back to before the new 52, which is really <laughs> where this, where I'm going to be bold and just say where Superman kind of lost his, his rudder. Uh, yeah. As far as as far as well, continuity uh, goes, as far as what and, a, we, and a lot of their books lost their rudder, and that's yeah. the thing is you know this is heading to the the confrontation as to back to the question who took the ten years away, yeah, you know, and so it'll be interesting to see. And we still right. have we still have shadowy figures in the interdimensional uh, uh, yes awareness of of all that has gone before and all that is going on now. If they bring resolved. Superboy Prime back with his reality punches, I'm going to be really mad. <laughs> Um, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna. You went from to A. I'm gonna start from the back of the alphabet. Okay. Uh, and that is, I don't know if you picked this, but I gotta say, this is an insanely beautiful book. If you didn't pick this up, Exo Man of War number one. 
Oh, no, it's I actually Exo Man of War Soldier. Um, written by Matt Kint, art by Tomas Girello and Diego Rodriguez. This thing is gorgeous. And I think I, I paid, uh, it was three ninety nine, but it's on heavy cardstock cover. Um, and I've never seen this guy's art before, but it it is fantastic. And I know that uh, Valiant had done some stuff with Exo Man of War before. So this is kind of a revival, like they'd canceled, you know, they'd stopped their story a few months ago, and and then they brought this back on. He's um, he's on another planet. It's kind of like space opera with barbarian oh, uh, elements, and the actual armor does not appear in this issue other than flashbacks to that other life. This is, yeah, you've got to hunt this down, Rick. I, I picked this up and I thought, i got to race Rick to see if, if he's going to pick, pick this or if I'm going to get and say it first. Uh, and then I feared because, you know, Valiant is not one that we often pick up. Um, yeah, I picked it, the, it's great. When it's it first a came out, book, I picked up I'm everything, not, and I really haven't picked up much of anything since. No, I am, you know, and I was not the big Exo Man of War fan that I, I think you were in the original yeah, incarnation. in the original series I was, yeah. This... Yeah, uh, you, you owe it to yourself. The, the concept and, of a caveman with with uh, high tech armor was really kind of fascinating. Yeah, and, it, and it's all in the past. So now they're kind yeah. of re- returning him to everything he's learned as as a as a barbarian who got the armor, and then learned and turned his back on it, and is trying to move forward into that kind of it's that you know far trying to live the farmer life. It's almost the unforgiven. Oh. Of of Exo Man of War and yeah it, it, it was brilliant. Uh, apparently, I missed at least one of the creators by an hour at Earth Two because Valiant has been sending their guys all around Los Angeles. I think even a couple representatives from Valiant appeared to just kind of they're they're doubling down. They know what a great book they have to hype up to people uh, that uh, they should be picking it up. So um, yeah, uh, clearly, have I been effusive enough? Yes, so. yeah. What's next in your bag? Next in my bag is one that I'm pretty sure you have picked up or will pick up if you didn't pick it up already. And that is uh, from Titan Comics, Kim Newman's Anno Dracula. I was leaving that for you. Okay. But uh, also because Earth 2 didn't have it. The, so I have to hunt it down this week. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> sub, the subtitle is um, 1895, Seven Days in Mayhem. Which is uh, which is kind of an interesting title because I know I, I, I think you're still reading the Name of the Wind. No, I, I finished it. Oh, you finished it. Good. So Name of the Wind is day one, which really yes. doesn't all take place in one day, other than the fact that there's a conceit there with the naming. And so this one, Seven Days in Mayhem, is not exactly what you're thinking from the standpoint of what that that means. Um, what's interesting about this. It looks to be written in parallel with the original Anno Dracula. We have yeah, two, we we did talk about that. I had a press release that said that it was a story off to the side. Yeah, and but it's also kind of like you know, there are some writers who pick characters and re, reuse them. Michael Moorcock is one of those guys. Philip Jose Farmer mm-hmm. is one of those guys. Um, and in this, we have. Uh, Kim Newman also just recently released a book called Angels of Music, which is about four women working for the fan of the opera to do kind of spy-like stuff. Um, And one of the women in Angels of Music is um, 
Catherine Reed, who is featured in this book. Um, she's in Anna Dracula, too. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, she's in the novel Anna Dracula. But I haven't read, I haven't read Angel of Music yet, but I'm kind of curious as to how um, the character comes across. Also interesting about this book, Paul McCaffrey, the artist for this, is um, is was the artist on Adler, Woman of Mystery. Um, mm, I remember you liking that one, yeah. I, I'd never heard of it before until I saw Paul McCaffrey, and I wanted to look him up and see who he, what he had done. So I've got to seek that out now. Hopefully Titan has still got it in print or collected or something, because I like the Irene Adler character, who actually does show up also in angels of music. So, um, yeah, he does reuse, um, cause Jean Biev, uh, yes. the young vampire is in a, it's not Warhammer. What's the fantasy game? Yes, she, he's in two. He, it's, uh, no, it's, there's the Warhammer role-playing game. Right. But they're novels. Yeah. And they're novels I, I wanna, based on that. Um, is Warhammer fantasy, not sci-fi? Warhammer Fantasy is is there's Warhammer 20K which is sci-fi and there's okay. Warhammer which is which is uh, sword and sorcery kind of stuff. Okay, there we go. I've read the uh, sword and sorcery Kim Newman novel with Jean Vietnam. Right. Um, so so she repeats is... repeats almost more cocky and kind of thing. Um, well, one thing were origin, but I think they're but I think they're parallel. They're not. Yeah, they're I, not I don't the think they're the universe. same character. Um, yeah. One thing I wanted to say about this book. It is a three ninety nine book. It is um, it is probably a little bit longer than most three ninety nine books we've been seeing, but the paper this is on and the print of this is just amazingly lush. The paper is like half again as thick as any any other paper you're going to well, find. Well, I'm, I'm glad we can praise them because I I, I read that the, the circulation is going like, like I say I walk into Earth two great store they didn't have it. Oh. And probably because I wasn't there to say, uh, you know, two months ago in Diamond, uh, hey, you know, I think I'm going to be in town this week that Anno Dracula comes out. You know, could you, <laughs> yeah. would you mind ordering Please. it? You know, and, 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 that's, I, and it's again, it's the problem with the way that the industry runs is you have to know in Diamond previews. And, and you know, I, I don't even know. So that's I'm going to track it down. I didn't pre-order it. Um, you know, it'll lose either, so nobody has to be upset. You know, they didn't pull it from me there. I'm gonna, but, I'm gonna point out one other thing too for these guys. You know, I don't know if you can tell me off the top of your head how many staples does does do any of your comic books have in them? I am looking at one that has two. It has two, right? And I'm looking. I was just checking. DC and Marvel look to be having two staples per book. Titan. Three, and I suspect, I, I suspect it's not necessarily uh, because of anything. Did you hear all our listeners' eyes roll on that? <laughs> I, I, I suspect it's because of the weight of the paper. <laughs> it's but, just like, oh, oh it's three and nine because they got three staples. Three staples. Instead of two. You're getting your money's worth, kids. <laughs> you can recycle those staples if you want to. Oh, jeez, Rick. Because we're going to recycle them all. If you need a um, staple, you can pull one out, and you'll still have a bound book. Oh crap! Okay, next <laughs> on my stack. I mean, yeah, you heard the phrase "double down," kids. Rick quadruples down, and it still doesn't make it better. Uh, 
club. They're good staples. Too, metal. Anyway, my, next on my stack is, is is a is Iron Fist number one. Oh, I'm glad you took that because now I don't have four. Okay. Um, well, you know what? I read it and I thought I would get into it because I really liked what David Walker had been doing with with Power Man and Iron Fist. Uh-huh. And they split them up so that people would go, oh, Netflix series, and pick these up. Right. And I suspect this is closer to the TV version, which I haven't watched yet. I started watching not, the first one. Yeah, it's, it's not the David Walker character. It's uh, the the art is gorgeous. Mike Perkins, I love Mike Perkins. Yeah. But this feels like a step back for who Iron Fist is, and or who had been been. So if you're you know if if you've enjoyed uh, the Power Man and Iron Fist book, I. I don't know. This just doesn't feel it. It's not even as good as, you know, oh, I'm sorry, there I said it. It, it didn't draw me in the way that um, Immortal Iron Fist had by by uh, Matt Fraction and Daniel Aha. Yeah, I was I was going to go there, too, because um, Immortal Iron Fist was such an iconic and a really iconic, meaning everybody's been turned into icons of, of different fighting styles and different character types and um, not stereotypes, but icons. They're, they're, they're almost like the... Uh, the mythological images upon which you base other characters. Um, and I mean that in all sincerity and as a, as great praise this just from the cover, it looks like it's going back more to the, um, the, the green pajamas, iron fist, uh, which I thought mm-hmm. at first I thought, Oh, it'll be kind of refreshing. Then I opened up and, and I'm going, wow, this is much darker, much more, uh, much more, um, light and dark play in the art and gritty and um, it looked to me I almost got a flavor of some of the later issues of uh, Master of Kung Fu from this because of the way that uh, things were happening outside of the U.S. Uh, but not in an interdimensional way, which is where it was all. No, no, I'm all for it. But it, but yeah, it, it, yeah it, it, it's a reset, a reboot, and yeah. it's like the third time that Iron Fist has done that in a decade. And I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, it just, it just, it was a cash grab, you know, because you just described Immortal Iron Fist and I got in, into a discussion online, and I say that with, you know, a respectful discussion of like, went with everybody talking about the whitewashing and, and uh, the horror writer Setsu Utsumi, um, we met at Bacon or, or, or Convergence a couple of years ago, uh, she said, she was asking, she said like, well, couldn't it be if like, you know, there, you say he fought a real dragon, and said, yeah, that was actually part of it, and you know, she described. Would it be interesting if there were all these other different ethnicities representing different martial arts? And I said that was kind of immortal Iron Fist. And I'm with you. Even if the Netflix series had been that, I would have loved that. But the Netflix series had to be street level and has to be tied into the Defenders. You know, it's, and realized that they just they just picked a character who would be the fourth member of the event of the Defenders and not instead of serving the serving Iron Fist. Now I haven't watched the series yet. But and so I freely admit I may I may actually really dig it I I don't know but I thought missed opportunity because there's a really unique story that was told by the by the book the Immortal Iron Fist that would have made a great great TV series in this Game of Thrones world so next in your bag okay the next in my bag is I was really looking forward to this I ordered it a while ago and it showed up today and that is. Um, from the uh, from the year 1972, uh, a collection of shorter uh, stories combined into one um, that originally 
premiered as part of Korak, Son of Tarzan. Um, this is Pellucidar by Edgar Pellucidar. Rice Burroughs. You know, I almost picked that up. Um, I, I at, almost at, picked that up today. It's it's. Um, you may want to go back because this is really good stuff. This is uh, I, this is this, you know, they're books that stay with. This is from 1972, and I'm flipping through this. I'm going. I remember this so. I remember just so digging this book as I as I was. And it was originally this. published by DC, but who yes. who's Dark, publishing it now? It's Dark, Dark Horse. Horse. And yeah. for it's a twelve ninety five book, twelve ninety nine book, um, one hundred and four pages. So not not a thick book for twelve ninety five, but still, uh, no ads, of course. And they put all the original covers in here, uh, uh, which is cool. So you get to see uh, the first issue of Korak had had uh, both Pellucidar and Carson of Venus as backup stories in it. Uh, uh, Tarzan had John Carter Morris as its backup story because they were uh, they were they yeah. were twenty five cent books for fi- fifty two big I, pages for twenty five cents. And I then, have one issue of Quarak, and that's how I discovered Carson of Venus and Pellucidar. Absolutely. And, and um, then they shifted, and they had all new stories in Edgar Rice Burroughs' Weird Worlds, and that had um, that had John Carter and. Uh, David Innes uh, for Pellucidar because they didn't never really push the Pellucidar on the cover. It was not until they got. But the yeah, other thing well, is, the other thing about this is the artist. So you got Alan Weiss is um, is one of them, and Weiss is Weiss is just one of those kind of like um, he draws a nice gangly um, foresty you know guy mm-hmm. fighting apes thing. You've got. Um, Dan Green does many uh, does a lot of the later, and then you've got Michael William Kaluta doing several several spots in the middle, and his stuff is just great. So uh, yeah. this is this is Pellucidar, not one of uh, the movies have all been kind of poor. Um, the stories have all been really great. If you can find the Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, paperbacks or whatever, um, but well, this, and this was um, a telling. And book. that's also known as At the Earth's Core. At right? the Earth's Core, and, right? And and the only reason I bring that up is because it's connected. Is that uh, you know that that they that um, Mike Richardson, when I interviewed him uh, on the podcast a couple of years ago, said you know that as far as he's concerned, Dark Horse put the final word on Tarzan because Tarzan doesn't fit into 2017. But you put Tarzan at the Earth's Core. Yes, he's happy in that jungle. You know, in the end, away from the prying eyes. So, it also, it, you know, once again, there's Dark Horse being this fantastic curator of the comics work uh, for Edgar Rice Burroughs and some of the best of the best. So, yes, totally worth it. My last choice is a trade paperback as well. I knew this was coming. Uh, <laughs> $17.99, a little more than yours, but. Uh, but the I talked about the first issue and then realized I'd, I'd missed a couple of issues, so I'm like I'm going to wait for the trade, and the trade showed up, which was Deadpool too soon, and it's uh, <laughs> it's again uh, you know as much as I is there I hate a question that, mark or just a, it's just a yes statement. it is Deadpool too soon question mark because it's Deadpool teamed with Squirrel Girl, Spider Ham, Rocket, Groot, and Howard the Duck to solve the murder of Four Bushman. Oh my. So five issues. 
uh, sorry, four issues of the miniseries, and then uh, and then a story from Gwenpool Holiday Special Merry Mix Up Number One. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention the Punisher is involved as well. So really, uh, if that's not nuts enough, brace yourself for Squirrel Pool. So um, <laughs> uh, I just say this was hilarious. Todd Knock did the art. Um, it's just a fun, fun book across the Marvel Universe with characters that basically, if you say Forbish Man, I say I'm there. So uh, that's, that's the last for what, what's the bag this week. I want to go quickly down, speaking of Deadpool, uh, some movie rumors uh, today in TV and we'll wrap up. And that is that uh, throwing the hat in the ring, Fox has announced that they're trying to uh, talk to Michael Shannon to play Cable in Deadpool 2. He has not been cast, but that's that seems to be the the front runner now. Who they would like to play Cable? That was General Zod and Man of Steel. Great actor, funny guy. Not sure I see him as Cable just because I don't see him as old enough. But maybe. Yeah. Um, Sony has also, and this is interesting because I think, well, as excited as you were that Marvel Studios got control over Spider-Man again. Sony seems to think that um, their contract still allows them to develop other characters from the Spider-Man universe without having to consult Marvel Studios. So they've announced that uh, they are actively, once again, working on their Venom solo movie, which will have, this is insane, and this is the kind of thing that that led the Spider-Man franchise astray in the first place, uh, that Venom doesn't have to have anything to do with Spider-Man. Okay, and and uh, they're also announced today that they are working on a Silver Sable and Black Cat spinoff, which Without actually Spider-Man? that doesn't have to have anything to do with Spider Man. I would grant yeah. that. Uh, the first draft of the screenplay was by Westworld's uh, Lisa Joy, so I'm sure there's something kind of interesting to it that otherwise I wouldn't have thought. Uh, and uh, but it's currently being rewritten by Christopher Yost, who wrote Thor: The Dark World and did a lot of work on the animated series. So uh, in the in the you know the Wolverine and the X and Mutant Academy or Wolverine and the X Men, the one where he was the head of 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 the school right. uh, before he was actually in the comics. So right. one of the you know Christopher Yost is big in the animated series. So um, I don't know if I'm really that interested, you know, but it could be. But I, I don't think I, I don't think I like Venom enough to think that would be a great movie if it has nothing to do with Spider Man. I just you know I don't think it'd be a great movie anyway. I think Venom to me works in small doses as a Spider Man antagonist, and there it is. Yeah, it'd be like the, doing a Lex Luthor movie. Oh, and this just in? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Warner Brothers is desperate, and they went Lex Luthor. People like Lex Luthor, no, and worse, it's the it's the Jesse Eisenberg. Movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's just, it's 90 minutes of transcriptions of Max Landis rants. Um, anyway, uh, and then this actually really truly just in like an hour ago, uh, Jimmy Palmiotti posted on, on Facebook that, uh, Paramount, uh, has announced that they are going to, uh, or at least planning to make an R rated adaptation of the pro, the Garth Ennis, uh, Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti graphic novel, about the prostitute who wakes up with superpowers. And uh, I don't know if you've ever read that graphic novel. It's, a, it's actually a good graphic novel. No, it's a great book. It's hilarious. Um, and it's a, it's a really solid story. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I'm just stunned that somebody wants to make it a movie, because I'm thinking I, I don't, everything that makes it charming to me is 
Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti's art on it, and I'm just afraid of what a Hollywood studio would do with it. And I know why they would want to do it because it's like, oh, Deadpool made money. What's lying around? Yeah. What's R-rated that we, you know, that we could uh, Logan seems to be doing all right, and and not understanding why. Yeah. Because that's yeah, how that's, you know, that's that's just it. They have to understand why the pro is a good book, and and it's because the character stays true to what she is through the whole story. There is no, she doesn't really change. No, right. And I, I don't, I, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody right, who hasn't discovered right. it. I just think, you know, you should look it up. It's not safe for work. It's not for the kids. No, uh, it's a, it's an R rated graphic novel. There's no question. It's Garth Ennis at his, at his Garthy Ennis. Um, that was weird trying to, but if you, you know, if you don't know his work, um, he was also one of the co-creators. Uh, he was the co-creator of, of Preacher, uh, which is coming back on AMC shortly. I think within a month, uh, season two is coming. And even though <clears throat> season one of that show was not a word-for-word adaptation of those of those uh, comics, um, it felt like Preacher, you know, and it had that sensibility. So if you're offended by Preacher, you're going to be offended by by the pro. If you watch Preacher and loved it. You're gonna love the pro even more so. I'm happy that I, you know, I, I like Amanda and Jimmy, uh, and and they're you know making their way through Hollywood too with the, with the, you know they've got Painkiller Jane. Um, what's her name? Uh, Jessica Chastain is uh, attached to be Painkiller Jane now. So um, didn't they do I'm, a I'm, movie or something with that? I think there was a TV series of uh, Painkiller Jane. Oh, okay. I don't know there was any. I think Sci-Fi did it. So I think by saying that. Doesn't that pretty much sum it up? It was right for somebody to do it right. Yeah. So, you know, um, from the past, in the future, in the present right now, they're great. Because let's say, right off the bat, Sci-Fi has renewed The Expanse for a third season. So, you know, I was was getting a little scared because I was reading these articles about, is nobody watching The Expanse? And it was on the bubble, but they went ahead. You know, really quality stuff. So that's good. That's the good news. In, for sci-fi fans this week. The bad news this week, and, and I, I don't want to dig too much because I, I think, one, I'd rather tie people to, uh, you know, direct people to the pieces you did about this, Digital Fanboy. Netflix announced what's going away in April. Every single series created by Joss Whedon is going away from Netflix. Uh, seven seasons of Buffy, five seasons of Angel, two seasons of Dollhouse, and one season of Firefly will be gone. And this is why, if you know, this, yep. this is the thing about streaming service. Every time I decide, you know what, I can just, you know, I don't need those I can, DVDs. I don't, I don't need those DVDs. Something like this happens, and I'm going, hmm. Well, darn glad I have Firefly. Yeah. Um, and was just thinking, you know, I really should give Dollhouse another watch. Yeah. And, well, I don't have time now because I'm too busy watching other things. But, you know, I just kind of counted they'd always be there. You well, know? you know, I pulled um, I pulled a couple of discs out of season six of Buffy the other morning to watch uh, the stuff leading up to Once More with Feeling and After. Because I wanted to see how they had fore- forecast that and how they took it up afterwards. And you also... If you if you go through the streaming services, you can't get that wonderful um, second audio commentary by Joss Whedon. Well, I would agree with that. That's yeah. that's something that uh, I, I wonder about. That you know, I, I've been talking to a lot of people that work on DVDs and so forth, uh, 
who say, you know, like the studios are just, they're going back to like static menus because nobody's into the physical media anymore. But I'm like, you know, I know not everybody goes to the extras, but every now and then I, I do like to go in. Yeah. You know, I would say certainly a Joss Whedon commentary. I was still going to say like, you know, two directors commentaries that are, that are absolutely brilliant. Um, is if you watch Thor and Kenneth Branagh's uh, commentary on Thor is absolutely fascinating. And I still go with Tropic Thunder. Um, oh, yeah, that one's, that, that that's one's... That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, that's, Robert you know, Downey so, Jr. is just... <laughs> genius. Anyway, so, uh, you know, the, 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 so you're right. I mean, that's what I would say. So you can look at Digital Fanboy. Rick wrote a couple years ago a four-part uh, series uh, talking about about digital media and and the pros and cons and certainly you know the, uh, one I like to say one of the advantages of Fanboy Planet 3.0 is you know you want to look and you want to open up a conversation on one of those pages yes let's start a conversation on one of those pages uh, about it and your experiences and what you think um, so please do or write on Facebook um, we depending will respond. on what oh, I try uh, depending on what platform I'm on sometimes Facebook doesn't tell me. Hmm. Or it says, "Oh, you got a notification. There was a message, and then I can't find it." So, uh, because it's a, I guess, a business page. We will try to oh. respond. We will try to respond. And you can always write in to editor at fanboyplanet.com. Uh, and the last thing, though, and, and this is interesting because again, I've already seen the controversy, uh, and we had kind of ignored the controversy, but now we we can't. Uh, Netflix released a teaser for their Death Note movie, which is coming in August. Uh, directed by Adam Wingard and Americanized and realized that Americanized is also, can I say a word? Um, well, I'll say it, whitewashed. And because I was watching the teaser today and I'm very excited for Death Note. And then I thought, you know, why? First of all, I'm sure the plot's changed. It looks like a, it looks like a teen murder mystery instead of Death Note, you know? Yeah. Did Did you watch it? I've um, I read the whole thing. Posted it. But no, no, I didn't no, watch no, no. The trailer, Did you watch no. the teaser? The teaser. I had not yet. Is, it, it's, it's set up in kind of this, as, as I saw some IO9, I think, commented. It's one of those where it's typical Netflix teaser where it's like, oh, you see none of the things you really want. And then in the last shot, they give you like the hint of the things that would actually have made you interested. Um, they show the notebook and, they ex- and, and, he, and the character, I don't think they're going to call him Light. Um, you know, it reads that sentence, whoever does this, but it looks like it's, it, it's like in the vein of a final destination or, a um, hmm. it, it looks like, or an I, I know what you, what you did last summer with supernatural. I'm trying to think, I know there are other, uh, and this is the person, uh, the guy who directed Adam Wingard did the, the Blair witch revival, you know? So I, it, it's just kind of. Like I suspect, I suspect it's not the story that I that you. I'll admit, I'll call it out. You got me hooked on, um, and uh, you know because what I'm not seeing in the trailer is is who that L detective character would be. Yeah, um, and I and I don't see any evidence that the guy, that the American kid playing uh, that that's standing in for Light is like is that kind of genius, you know? And, and so it just, it just feels like it's not, I was excited about this because there could be no better choice to play Ryuk than Willem Dafoe. Um, so that's perfect. Uh, you, you get, you got me a great Shinigami, but 
I don't know about anything else. And then the other thing I thought is like, well, why couldn't the actors be Asian American? You know, I'm starting to get the, you know, get that yeah. feeling in a story like that is like, even the, even though it takes place in America, why aren't they Asian American? And I didn't really comment on, on that online. And I kind of feel bad that I didn't because is sort of, then I, and then I, <laughs> then I did a search. Oh no, please. Many people with much more authority on the issue uh, have made the comment. So I'm going to go with that. It's like, at least, and there's the thing is, is at least I can defend Iron Fist and say, well, Colleen Wing showed up, you know, and, and, and I believe probably kicks Danny Rand's ass. But this one is like, not even one Asian American actor in the teaser. You know, it's just kind of, uh, you know, even Ghost in the Shell has beat Takeshi. I realized that. I was watching the trailer last week going, oh my gosh, the guy from Takeshi's Castle, who I know, no, please do not write in angrily at me. <laughs> and that's just the part I like, you know, I, that I, I like about it. But I know he was a big, uh, you know, he'd done a lot of Japanese cinema as a Yakuza uh, and, and, you know, really famous actor in Japan, but that I know him from watching Takeshi's Castle and the, uh, what was the name of that one that Spike TV dubbed in comedy tracks to it? Um, uh, crap. Blanking. I even have the DVD somewhere. See, that's the advantage. Uh, you know, having the physical media, but yep. I'm nowhere near my physical media right now. Um, anyway, so that's the news I wanted to talk about it this week. Uh, so I hope that we, we've given you a smattering and you've enjoyed this. Once again, if you have any questions, comments, compliments, commentary, criticism, write into editor at fanboyplanet.com. Don't forget Amazon. Don't forget PayPal. Don't forget your local brick and mortar store and you can pick up some of these books. And uh, I'm Derek McCaw, editor in chief of fanboyplanet.com. And I'm Rick Brett Snyder reminding you to use, use your, your powers, powers only, only for, for good. good. Thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com.